I noticed that there are fewer kids here because I have a, I have a presupposition. There are 37 women gone. That means there were certain men today who could not get it all together <laughs> to get the kids here today. And some came to church anyway. And uh, I'm sure glad the women are among the faithful who are, I hope uh, it was relaxing for them. I know that when my wife used to go on those retreats, it was, it's a difficult deal because you got to get everything together and then show me like, okay, this is where the coffee maker is, this is where the cereal is, don't forget, and I'd have a long list of where people had to be. And, uh, you know, I remember the first time my wife was away for the longest time was when my uh, mother-in-law had back surgery and our kids were six and about three and a half. And I kid you not, she was gone for 10 days, so my six-year-old was in, in school and that was, that was great, but my three-year-old, so we had all these different routines of who have to get people where, but I kid you not, this is what I did, and I did this in front of all of the terminal uh, at, the, at the Minneapolis airport. When she got off the plane, this was my pose. I was kneeling down with Rosa saying, never do this to me again. <laughs> and, um, you know, ladies, uh, they're not here to say, but the rest of you can share this with them when they get back. I think oftentimes we men just completely take for granted what you do. And so I, for one, after that experience, repented to the Lord about how often I had taken my wife for granted. So today, turn to Colossians chapter 1. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we read it, to, as I read it to you, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Get that iPhone out, get that Bible out, get the iPad out, but get the word out as I read it to you. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do not share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me." Heavenly Father, may your word come alive to us today. May the messenger not confuse the message. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Take your notes out. I'm a big uh, proponent of filling in the blanks, writing extra notes. Get your pens available. Here are your notes. We want to look at the topic today being complete in Christ. Complete in Christ, and we want to talk what it means to be a disciple and, and what is that process. And we see some suggestions here in verses 24 to 29. Now, this whole idea of process and journey was probably brought out to me more than ever over the last seven years. I want to talk to those of you who are college students just for a moment. If you are a college student or in what would be that typical range of 18 to 37, could you identify yourselves publicly? You are a college student. Many of you are in this audience here today. How many of you would like to be a college student someday? How many of you are saying, I've done with that and I'm so glad I'm out? All right, so we, we can relate to that. But this whole process of going to college is an interesting thing, isn't it? My son graduated from high school uh, from Esperanza High School in 2005. I do believe that was the year. And he was all filled with excitement about getting off to college until day one of the first class. And then he realized 
this is a lot harder than I thought it would be. He promptly dropped two classes that fall, ended up with about eight units, and decided college is not for me. I want to work. I want to make money. I want to get my life on with, with process and he didn't even think of the word process. He just knew that college wasn't his deal. And so he kind of circumvented the process. He didn't complete the process. Now, it didn't help that he was selling spas at the time. Now, you say, what is a guy who's 18? How did he get into selling spas? It's a long story, but he was cleaning them, and one day said, hey, boss, can I go to the next trade show? I think I could sell these better because quite frankly, and this is his words to me, he, I don't think he said it exactly to the boss this way, he said it something like this, because the guys you have selling these spas are totally lame. They're old, they're crusty, they don't know how to engage people. You need someone young, energetic, somebody like me. He has never been shy on self-promotion. And so, his first show he went to, in the first 30 minutes, some guy came up and bought a $15,000 package, and in 30 minutes, since he got 10%, he made $1,500. And so therefore, I now was worried that school would never be a part of his equation, because he made money, and he thought that would be plenty. And, and when you're 18, $1,500 sounds like a ton of money. Some of you are going, when you're 56, $1,500 sounds like a ton of money. But he circumvented the process because he, he lost sight of the goal, and it took him then, before he ever got back to school, seven years to graduate from college, which he finally did as a 25-year-old this past spring at Cal State Fullerton. You say to me, what does that have to do with discipleship. You see, so often, we wanna circumvent the process of spiritual growth. We believe that we can kind of take shortcuts or maybe we can do this or we can get spiritual quick, so to speak. And in our passage here, we don't get that. And in fact, the Christian life that we talk about <clears throat> is a lifetime journey. This idea, you come to faith in Christ and everything from your point of decision all the way until you go to see your maker in heaven. The rest of your life is this sanctification process, and Paul talks a little bit about that in this section. And in fact, this road is what leads you towards spiritual maturity. It takes discipline, you can't quit. It has bumps in the road, it, there are ups and downs. And in fact, Paul's goal was to see that the Colossian believers would ultimately, ultimately become more Christ-like. And in fact, the end goal, he describes it there, you see it at the end of verse 28, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And so I wanna suggest to us this morning, what is that discipleship process? Now I can't get all of it right from this text, but I think you'll see that there's five markers that we should be reminded of along the way of this journey. These are mile markers that say this is important to the Christian life. So principle number one is that recognize that suffering is part of our development plan. You say, oh, you gotta be kidding. Yeah, suffering is part of the sanctification process. It's part of the discipleship plan. You say, can't you just skip that one? Couldn't we, wouldn't it be easier to convert more people if you kinda just downplayed that side of it? Just make it all sound like it's just gonna be great and there'll never be issues in your life. You'll just kinda glaze through those problems. I can't get there from here. Look at what we see in the scripts. Uh, look at Paul's example. First of all, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. His suffering, and we, we talked about this a few weeks ago when the Teen Challenge Choir was here. If you remind yourself again to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 30, all the things that he suffered. But his suffering wasn't for naught, it was for the benefit of the broader church of Christ. And in fact, his perseverance because of suffering, he wrote several books of the New Testament. So he wrote in imprisonment, even though he was suffering. Secondly, everything in Paul's life led him to this conclusion, that Jesus Christ is worth living for. 
Is Jesus Christ worth living for? Now, there is a really peculiar word here. It says, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What in the world does that mean? Well, interesting enough, some denominations have taken that to mean something that it does not mean. Uh, I know some of you come from a Roman Catholic background. This is where the Catholics would take this verse, among others, and begin to develop their position on purgatory. It would come from this verse, that somehow Christ's atonement is incomplete or lacking. Well, we know that's utterly false. And in fact, this is not a reference to purgatory. I don't believe there is a purgatory, but that's a whole nother discussion. So the afflictions, the word, the Greek word that's used there is never used in relationship to Christ's suffering on the cross, but it's always about the tribulations that we will suffer during our life as Christians. And what he's essentially saying is this, we continue to live our lives just as Christ did, and with that, we will encourage and, in, and be involved in suffering at some level. 1 Corinthians, 1, or, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 5 says this, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. I think I've mentioned you this before, if you do a theology of suffering, you will see that concept of suffering, trials, tribulations in every book of the Bible. It, we are not exempt as Christians from suffering. Now, suffering for a high school or junior high student or a college student or a, a newlywed or a oldiewed or someone on the end of the lifespan looks very different. For just a moment, what does suffering look like for a college student since we started with you today? Just give me one. What's something a college student has to endure today? Anybody? Finals. Okay, that, that's true. Anything else? Yes. Having no, money. Having no money. How many could relate to the trial of no money? That is transcends college students, I believe. But yeah, there's, there's something that, and I don't mean to point them out, but we've been praying. Suffering when you have an aging parent is a little different, isn't it, for the Heatleys? There, uh, you know that um, the Dallas has been uh, in the hospital and there's been surgeries. Just look around here when I ask you this question. How many of you in this room are caring for, literally in some capacity, an aging parent? Look around there, one, two, three. There's many of you who are caring for aging parents. That's what we're doing right now. So suffering and the trials of life, we're not exempt, and it looks differently at different life stages. Now, what this isn't saying, this making up uh, this, this phrase of filling up what is lacking, what it doesn't mean is this denial of self. There was a, a segment of folks, philosophers later on after this was written called the ascetics. And they believed that you'd have to deny yourself uh, and even inflict torture on yourself to try and gain favor to God. This is not what that's referring to either. So let's summarize, and I didn't give you much <clears throat> room to write, but I'm gonna give you five points about our experience in suffering, because it is part of the discipleship process. If you don't warn your disciples that you will face tribulation, then oftentimes we find like the four soils. We saw people who, the, if you read the parable, how often people kind of fall away from the faith. So first of all, I wanna suggest this. Suffering is normal, so let's not be surprised by it. Good luck writing all this in, firstborns. I know it's not much space. Suffering is normal, so let's not be surprised by it. John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. Now, I'm not gonna take a lot of time, to. I'll just give you these five points. Number two, suffering assures us that we belong to him. So let's trust him through it. It reminds us that we belong to him. 2 Timothy 3:12. indeed all who desire to have, live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4, 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Number three, in our experience, suffering brings us closer to Christ, so let's embrace it. Philippians 3, 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that sounds good so far, and, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Number four, suffering matures us, so let's grow through it. James 1, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. 
And then lastly, suffering is temporary. So let's keep it in perspective. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, the momentary light affliction produces for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So suffering is normal. Suffering assures us that we belong to him. Suffering brings us closer to Christ. Suffering matures us. And suffering is temporary. Now, that's the first principle. In the discipleship process, we gotta understand that suffering is a part of life. Now, if we're gonna mentor or disciple someone, then we need to also secondly realize that, that realize that serving others is a part of discipleship. Now I wanna illustrate that I believe investing in people are important, and I've asked John to preach this point. It's not, you know, when we, when we preach from God's word, I believe that the discipleship process involves me investing in our staff. And uh, we actually worked on the text together this, this week, and I said, why don't you take point two? You say, why'd you give him point two? Because I have no idea what that verse means. John, take it away. He's not lying about that one. Um, realizing that a part of discipleship is service and serving others. If you look at verse 25, verse 25 talks about this as, of this church, of this church I was made a minister. And we were thinking about that word, and we actually looked it up, and it's actually the word diakonos, where we get the word deacon. It literally means waiter or waitress. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience at a restaurant of a waiter or waitress serving you well. Um, I don't have the opportunity to go to many fancy, expensive restaurants like Ruth Chris Steakhouse and things like that. But my wife got a, a gift card to Fleming's. I don't know if you've ever been to Fleming's. But we had the opportunity to go to Fleming's. And, uh, and so we go in, and, you know, I felt like a redneck going into this place. Like, <laughs> we're going in on a Monday night. There's no one there. They, they, they seat us by the kitchen. I'm going, wow, awesome. We get to look at the flames and stuff like that. And, and so we're sitting there, and, and I'm reading their menu. And um, there's a lot of zeros behind a lot of the, the entree. And you buy a steak. That's it. $50.00. You get a steak. No sides, no nut. I, I don't know if you, maybe this is like new to me, but not to you. You're like, oh yeah, that's normal. But $50, I'm going, well, what? I have to order the sides as 10, 20? What? What is going, okay. So we're going to split a meal. I'm going to order a, an appetizer and uh, you'll order a steak and that'll be it. And we'll have waters. But actually my wife wanted a soda. So she asked, you know, because we have wine. And I'm like, no, we can't afford it. Look at the zeros. <laughs> and, and, she, and she says, well, you know, do you, do you have soft drinks here? And it just felt horrible. I'm like, oh, you're asking for a soft drink at this place? And he's like, yeah, we have all the Coke products. We have, you know, Coca-Cola, Diet Coke, Sprite, Mr. Pib. And my wife's like, oh, Mr. Pib? You have Mr. Pib? I would like a Mr. Pib. <laughs> and so the guy's like, okay. And he goes back and he's getting our drinks. I asked for a water because it's free. And, um, and so he comes back a few moments later with my water and he brings the water for her and says, you know what? We, it says Mr. Pib on the thing. I push it in and only water comes out. We don't, we don't have it. And she's like, oh, okay. You know, that's fine. I'll just diet coke, whatever. You know, it's fine. Well, the manager comes up to us and says, hey, I'm really sorry about the Mr. Pib. I sent our hostess across the street to the liquor store to get you a Mr. Pib, and they don't have any. And their response at the liquor store was, what does it look like? We're in Texas? And, and I just want you to know we're really, really sorry about that. I'm going, the manager sent the hostess across the street to get you a stinking soft drink? Like, what kind of... And while we're there, we're just, we, now we, I start getting intrigued, and I'm going, D is this normal? Like, if I ask for a baby Ruth candy bar, will you go get me one? Like, <laughs> you know, wh what is going on here? This is, this is, just run across the liquor store. Yeah, let's go. And it was all a part of the service. The manager came back to us later in the meal and asked us this question and it hit me and it was part of this idea of service and serving. And I want to ask you the question, what are you serving to others? Are you serving like Burger King? Or are you serving like Fleming's? Because she comes back to us and says, was everything perfect for you tonight? 
Not, was everything all right? Does your food taste good? It was, was everything perfect? And I thought about that idea. And thinking about our lives and thinking about what are we serving? How do we serve Christ to others? Are we serving it like filet mignon? We're making the sacrifice to run across to the liquor store to help those that are in need? Just so others can experience perfection in Christ? As we left that night, our server comes up to us and says, hey, thank you so much for allowing me the pleasure to serve you. Here's my card. I have a waiter's card. And he said, if you ever come back, I would love the pleasure of serving you again. I was thinking he was handing me a card saying, I'm an actor. Will you hire me? You know. (laughs) And it's that idea of what are you serving to those around you? We have two high school students, Sean and Patrick Poole. Sean and Patrick Poole go to Calabasas High School. And they are leading the Christian club there this year. I had the opportunity to go to one of their first meetings this last Wednesday. And it was incredible. I I walk in and Sean's first response was, sorry, John, there's not a lot of people here. There were probably about 18, 20 kids in that room. He's like, we had issues with the email. And I was like, oh man, do you got a virus or something? He's like, no, we just didn't send it. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay, user error. That makes sense. He's like, we'll have more next week, I promise. I was like, Hey, this is awesome. And Sean and Patrick are serving Calabasas High School Jesus. In that meeting were at least two Jewish students and one Muslim student and one kid that's a part of what I can call a cult. But he thinks he's a Christian. But Jesus is one of seven gurus that he believes in. And these guys decided that they wanted to serve these kids Christ. And so they open up the four spiritual laws And they start explaining what it means to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. I had a couple opportunities to step in and clarify a couple things for the kids that weren't Christians, and even for some of them that were Christians. But these guys are serving Christ to their campus. God's placed you in a neighborhood. Are you serving Christ? like filet mignon to your neighbors around you? My neighbor, Shiva, sits out on her front patio every time I come home you know, late. She's out there just hanging out, watching the sunset with some friends. And my daughter came up to me and said, Daddy, does Shiva know Jesus? And my first response was, I don't know. But I hope that she sees Jesus in me. But is that good enough? If we're called to be a minister, to be a deacon, to be a servant, a table waiter to those around us of Jesus Christ, are we, wherever God's placed us, serving Christ like filet mignon to others? Because see, Steve Rosignol, who's our waiter, who I got his card, I want to go back. Not because the steak was amazing, It was. It was amazing. It was expensive. But they have a happy hour in their bar area, and they serve burgers over there for 10 bucks. I was like, hey, that's a bargain. Let's go for a date night there. But I want to go back because my service was perfect. It was excellent. Does our servanthood draw others into Christ's heart? Now that's a hard act to follow, let me tell you. Excellent. That was so what we needed to hear today because oftentimes as we think about serving, we think of only these very traditional ways of serving in our children's ministry or this or that. But you are servants, just as John's pointed out. Let's look at number three. Third thing you want to remind your disciples, that your people you're mentoring, people you're investing is Remind our disciples that Christ is their ultimate hope. This is the mystery which has been hidden. Look at the end of verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the promise was for these believers here, the hope was uh, tied to this very simple fact. The Holy Spirit resides in you and ultimately that's what you cling to. 
Remember, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and left. It was empowering for a time. After the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, every believer, when you become a Christian, receives the Holy Spirit. By the way, you don't get more of the Holy Spirit at some later second blessing. You get the Holy Spirit. The question I want to ask you, does the Holy Spirit get a hold of you? You get all of the Holy Spirit. The question is, your ultimate hope, though, is in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament saints believed in a future hope. They had the sacrificial system, remember the lambs and, and, the, and the tabernacle and all of that. And they practiced, quote, their faith through the sacrificial system. It, it was a precursor. The Lamb of God was actually Jesus Christ. And the mystery that was hidden from them was twofold. That ultimately, that there would be a Messiah, Jesus, who would, or Yeshua, who would ultimately be their Savior. Most Jews of Jesus' time missed that, especially the religious leaders. But the second mystery is that this plan wasn't just for the Jewish nation, it was for the Gentiles. God's chosen people weren't the only ones who could get in on this offer of salvation. That was hidden from them. Jesus is for all people. I want to pause here for a moment. Many of you in this room today are on this journey of sanctification, this journey of maturity. Some of you are in this congregation today, and you're checking it out. You're not exactly sure where Christ fits in your worldview. And so I gotta tell you again, if that's something that you're needing to figure out, you've got to spend some time with Rocky Nungester. That would be Nungester Sr., and he's somewhere in the back there. Because we're doing this thing called the Truth Project. Every Sunday morning, eight o'clock, and you can discuss and debate and think and reflect and strategize and ask questions about the Christian worldview. And so it's for everyone. And I think it's important to know that we can try to be geniuses and, and mentally work through all this, but ultimately what Paul is saying is God will have to reveal that to you. It's God who, who stepped in. Now, there's a paradox, and I want to talk about two things here. Christ in you and you in Christ. Christ in you describes our power. Christ in you describes our power. Acts 4.13. Look at this little verse. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. When Christ is in you, people recognize that there's something different in your life, that they see Jesus in your life. There's um, a woman in our church, a family, and I, I didn't get permission to use their name, but I'm sure they wouldn't care, but I'll just leave it as Mrs. Smith in our congregation. She has a neighbor. She has a neighbor who hasn't been, get, been able to get out. And it came through our elders if one of us would go and serve communion to this neighbor. And she's been in Bible study with the, her neighborhood for 25 plus years. And it was the coolest thing. She arranged for everything. And um, we, I went over there to meet her neighbor. She is Jesus Christ to that neighborhood. And the lady has a condition where her heart rate drops and barely beats and she gets lightheaded and, and dizzy. But I'll tell you why, this neighbor sees Jesus and this woman in our congregation. She told me her story, she said, I go to the Episcopal church, but I called three times over the last three weeks and nobody would come. And then when I was gonna offer her communion, she says, well, the crazy thing is, finally someone showed up yesterday and they sent a, an intern over to, and there's nothing wrong with interns, an intern over to serve me communion. And I could tell by the way she said it, she was perplexed. I was a pastor she had never met, but her neighbor loves her so much, she wanted to make sure her pastor got over there and served her regardless of who else would come. And we prayed, and I took her to James 5, and we prayed about healing, we prayed about God's purpose in suffering. And with tears in her eyes, she kind of teared up. She said, thank you, Pastor, for caring. 
Now, I know that, that sounds great, like, whoa, Pastor John, you, you hit a home run. No, you know who hit the home run? The woman in our church who had cared enough about her neighbor, and that neighbor sees Christ in her. That's our power. When people see Jesus working through you. There's a guy in our church named Jim Lildergren. People see Christ in him. He is so busy, I can't get on his appointment calendar till November 5th. He wasn't bragging, but he said, yeah, it's kind of tough. I said, what are you doing right now? He says, well, my nine o'clock appointment canceled, so I'm walking. I said, can you walk and talk? He goes, that's a good use of my time. I said, awesome. 17 people this week he had one-on-one appointments with, either by Skype with people in Russia or people in our church. People see when Christ is in you. That describes our power. But you in Christ describes our position. You in Christ. Christ is in you, but you're in Christ. Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, that identifies you as part of God's family. It's our position. It's secure. It can't be taken away. When Jesus Christ comes via the Holy Spirit to live in you as a believer, his presence, the Holy Spirit, is the anchor of the promise of what is to come. And that's the guarantee of your future life in eternity with Jesus. Number four. The fourth thing you gotta remember in the mentoring, discipleship, the sanctification process is that remember that discipleship involves proclamation. Last two verses, we proclaim him. It's a process and I'll take you through it. There's a plan, there's a purpose, and there's a power. First of all, it's a process, admonishing and teaching. Two sides of proclamation. Admonishment, which is kind of the negative side. In fact, the, the word there is where uh, we get the word uh, uh, nethetic counseling. It's this kind of counseling that some folks do. If you've heard of Jay Adams and whatnot, this admonishment, that correction. And I gotta just tell you, if we're gonna have to correct someone, if you've got to admonish someone, can I suggest that it's a lot better with honey than vinegar? You see, we've talked about this as, our, as a staff. You know, the scripture says, Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love. Now, some of you are, have no problem speaking the truth. The problem is you leave an emotional wake of carnage behind you. You told them the truth, but you brutalized them. You hurt them because all truth, and you can write this little math formula in your notes, truth minus love equals hurt. You can't do that. Well, you can do it, but if you wonder why people run from the hills when they see you coming, because you're about to truth them. And And the crazy thing is, you're usually right. It's not enough to be right. You gotta be redemptive in how you do that. We got great elders. I watch how they navigate through difficult situations. And they have to speak hard truth sometimes. But if it's all truth and there's no love, you're gonna hurt people. Now the flip side is, and that's something I've had to work on, quite frankly. The flip side is all love minus truth equals hypocrisy. Math formula number two. Truth minus love equals hurt, flip it around. Love minus truth equals hypocrisy, or half-truth. How many of you ever met someone who you don't really know what they're thinking? They're really nice, but you don't know what's going on behind those eyeballs. Some of you are lovers of people's soul, and then you're so frustrated, because in your soul you're like, and just let's suggest that in marriage, generally one of us is a truth speaker, One is a lover. I'll let you guess who my wife is. She's the lover. But sometimes she has to speak truth and it's hard for her to say that that difficult thing. And so realize that there is this admonishing piece. By the way, truth plus love equals honesty. That's what we have to do. Truth plus love equals honesty. And it works in marriages, it works in parenting, and it should work in the church. There's the admonishment side, but there's the teaching side. That's the positive side. That's the instruction side. That's the 2 Timothy 2.2. Teach others also. 
And so discipleship, there's coaching, there's mentoring. It's a big part of this process. The reason I'm doing this three-week parenting series on Tuesday nights is I think there's a whole bunch of parents that spend all their time getting ready for a wedding but not preparing for a lifetime of marriage. And then one day they woke up with these little rugrats running around, and now what are we gonna do? And we live with the myth that someday I'll get to. And then the next thing you know, they're out of your home. And you wonder where the days went. And you look back maybe a little bit with heartache about what you wish you could have done before they were out from underneath your wings. And so I wanna encourage you, whether you're a young parent, an older parent of a high school kid, almost an empty nester, that these next three Tuesday nights we'll talk about God's plan for parenting because there is instruction involved. Well, we see this plan. Not only is it admonishing, but the plan is for every man. That's mankind, men and women. The Colossian heretics that Paul was addressing believed that perfection was only for the elite. And so oftentimes out of that doctrine becomes another doctrine that has, I think, become more prevalent in the last 50 years in the church today, and that's this doctrine of sinless perfection. That is not what this is teaching. You will never be perfect on earth. Short of heaven, we are sin flawed. We're also forgiven, thank goodness. And so he's saying here that this plan is for everyone. My challenge to you is everyone in our church. Where is, where is that person you're mentoring? I asked the elders this week, who are you, as we prayed, we prayed for people we were investing in. Who are you making an investment in? What does that look like? In a moment, I'll bring up somebody else for you to have a little interview along that line. Thirdly, it's a purpose that we may present every man complete in Christ. What is the purpose? Present every man complete in Christ. That doesn't mean they'll be perfect, but we want to help them grow towards Jesus Christ. Our ultimate goals become more like Christ. Now, Paul was bold. He said in 1 Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. Wow, Paul. Sometimes I want you to follow me. I'm thinking about it. If people followed me this week, would they see Jesus or would they go, oh, Pastor Irwin, what were you thinking? It's never surprising to me when someone, I hear a story about someone seeing me somewhere and I'm being scrutinized. It kind of goes with the territory of being a pastor. I remember the first ticket I got in Minnesota. (laughs) It was right by my house. I knew it was a 25 mile zone and I was late to get to a meeting of all places at church. So I thought I had some spiritual pass that you can go 50 in a 25 I guess. And I got pulled over, the cop comes out he wants to usher me in a citation. I was a little irritated. I'll admit I was less, less sanctified than I am today. We won't tell you how long ago it was. It was years ago, though. And um, I kind of argued a bit. I said, well, what does signing this ticket mean? They said, you need to sign it. And he had a bit of an attitude, I, you know, and I don't, you know, I'm generally a pacifist when it comes to those things. Let me sign it and pay or go to traffic school. But I was irritated and I said, well, I don't want to. He goes, well, I can help you sign it. I go, what does that mean? He gets on his mic. We have a situation here and they're like calling in another police car. I'm like, oh, great. This is great for the news. Youth pastor busted, Eden Prairie, Minnesota, news at six. You know, and I'm like, oh, I better back down. So I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He goes, would you like to sign it now? I said, I would. Okay, so end of that discussion, all right? It is now... Seven or eight weeks later, it's the summer. Of all places, I'm at a golf tournament that I got to go to. I'm walking into the venue, and I see someone who I've never met before. Remember, I'm in a church at that time in Minnesota. It's about 4,000 people, so more people know me, but I don't know them. This person goes, hey, Pastor Owen, how you doing today? I'm going, hi, I, I, I'm doing great. I, do I know you? And he goes, yeah, I go to church And then without missing a beat, he says, boy, you're doing a lot better today than I saw you a few weeks ago. I go, what do you mean? He goes, oh, I happen to be driving by where you're getting that ticket on Del Road. I went, was I smiling? He goes, 
Not so much. <laughs> and I wanted to crawl in a hole because I wasn't a very good example of Jesus. And so oftentimes, we're not living for Jesus. And so people can't follow us because we're not where we need to be. Here's the bottom line. God does the transformation in this proclamation. We just do the presentation. God does the transformation. We do the presentation. Fourthly, look at the power. Striving according to his power. Write down 1 Corinthians 15.10. I don't have time to read it, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And you can read that verse. According to his power. His power is what fuels us. Without fuel, we'll run out of gas. We'll run out of gas spiritually, physically, emotionally. Apparently in California, we may be <clears throat> running out of gas in a different way with these gas prices. I was thinking about if I can't get gas, how do I, am I gonna ride my bike here? How am I gonna get here? See, when we run out of gas, don't, I've, I've run out of gas two times in, in my car in the last six, eight weeks, and I've been running it to empty. Don't press your luck, friends. When you're running out of gas spiritually, you're no good for the kingdom. You gotta recharge, you gotta refill. Part of that's on Sunday morning. Part of that's in youth groups during the week. Part of that's in your home group on Tuesday nights. Part of that's on, on Tuesday mornings or uh, with women's lambs and precepts and men's summit. Where are you recharging spiritually? Because it happens according to his power. So let's wrap up today. A practical application. You know, when I think about discipling and mentoring, I wish I would have put a picture in the PowerPoint of the five men who mentored me over the course of time from the time I was in sixth grade all the way through seminary. I actually got all five of those men in one place at one time. But I was kind of going through some journals and stuff yesterday. As I looked at that, I realized what these men meant to me. And number one, let me tell you what they didn't do what it wasn't about. Number one, discipleship is not about more knowledge. It's not about just acquiring knowledge. It's about application. It's not knowledge acquisition. It's knowledge application. We've talked about this before, but you know, some of us, we got plenty of truth. We're always looking for this new nugget that the pastor's gonna give on Sunday morning. You know what? We got a bunch of truth we could apply right now. I'm not diminishing the preaching of God's word. But too many of us, and you'll hear me use this over and over again, don't be educated beyond your obedience. There's truth God's revealing to you. Obey it. Do it now. Believe it. Trust in it. Secondly, discipleship is not telling me telling you what to do. Discipleship is not me telling you, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. Discipleship isn't about a lecture. It's about a relationship. Now what is discipleship? I wanna suggest just two things. There's a lot more that could be said. But I wanna suggest that discipleship is about transformation, not just information. The Holy Spirit brings about that transformation. And then secondly, it's about living the truth, not just learning the truth. I think the most important thing in a mentoring or discipleship relationship is not the curriculum you cover. It's the time you spend together and how you do that makes all the difference in the world. Today, Ch uh, earlier in the week, Chad, John, and I were in my office in Colossians studying the text and, and getting our heads around. We had commentaries open. We had lexicons open because we wanted to get this right and we did it together. I think sometimes mentoring and discipleship involves a very set curriculum. I just came from a church that was really small. We had no money. So we found this cool online discipleship curriculum that's free. Some former Campus Crusade guy wrote it. He's from Hawaii and if you're interested in I've got five volumes, eight lessons per volume. It's all free, it's PDF'd, and all you need is a printer to print it out. It's not fancy, you buy a little notebook and put it in there. And we found as we were mentoring new believers is 
to expect them to do it by themselves and come with their answers was intimidating. So my wife discovered if they just did it together, I don't know how many times she's done that first book of eight lessons over and over again with various young ladies who come to faith in Christ. Whatever you use, the, the, the material is as important as that Christ is in you and as you share truth, you do it in community. You do it in relationship. Well, we're gonna, we wanna wrap this up and I, I, I want to say for another time, I want you to think, what does a committed disciple look like here? Now, it's something I've thought about and I've thought about a long time ever since I became a senior pastor. What am I really asking for from my people? And your new pastor is going to ask you, what does a committed Christ follower look like in this context? I'm gonna give you some things I've been thinking about, but it doesn't mean that this is a list and you know, check it off and you feel good as a Christian because you're doing, doing, doing. That's why you're a human being, right? So what is it? But there are some things that kind of point me or steer me and say, hey, if someone is walking with Christ, these, these fruits might be evident. Well, first of all, I think a committed disciple here looks like they show up on Sundays. It's quite a concept, but actually got to be here. It's hard to grow when you're, you're at home, at Bedside Baptist, at Church of the Inner Spring, with Reverend Sheets and, and Pastor Pillow. Oh, that's horrible. That's bad. But you got to be here. You got to be here. I'm so surprised when some of you say, hey, I wasn't here, but I listened to the, I went to the website and I watched the message. That's awesome. Thank you. Secondly, you got to connect relationally. Uh, attend regularly. Connect relationally. You, you can't do this Christian life by yourself. Get in a small group. Get into a Bible study. Go to Men's Summit. Thirdly, you got to serve faithfully. And that service there's so many to choose from. Fourth, you gotta give sacrificially. You say, I gotta give? Yeah. Did you check out the bulletin? We're about a lot of money behind in this first month. Now, I'm not gonna preach a lot about that, but hey, if God's blessed you, give sacrificially. Fifth, evangelize intentionally. Are you looking to share your faith? Are you praying about opportunities to share your faith? Sixthly, love unconditionally. We gotta love people in spite of, not because of. We're not always very lovely. Let's be frank. In the body of Christ, here's the little secret. Some people, even amongst us, are odd for God. And you go, ooh, that sounds cruel. And No, there are some people who are just odd. But does that give you a free pass because they're odd and they're different that you just ignore them? Or you don't reach out to them? Hey, aren't you glad that someone cared enough to bring you and invite you to be a part of something bigger than yourself? And then pray fervently. Not because we have to, because we want to. Now you say that's very metrics oriented. Attend regularly, connect relationally, serve faithfully, give sacrificially, evangelize intentionally, love unconditionally, and pray fervently. Yeah, that is. And don't miss the point. Those are just some markers that say, hey, maybe this person is moving towards maturity. But there's so much more underneath the surface of your life that transcends these behaviors. And ultimately, where is your heart today? Where is your attitude today? Are you quick to criticize? Fast to condemn? Or do you come to ABF because God in his marvelous grace has saved you and redeemed you and taken your life from the pit? There are times when I have to say the hard things as a pastor. If you are more about making things right according to your plan and telling people this is how it's got to be and putting everybody in your little box, that doesn't work, friends. 
Jesus is bigger than your box. And whatever your hobby horse is, maybe it's time to get off that horse. And you say, man, what's fueling this? Why are you so intense about this? Because I want people who come to ABF to see you the way I see you. And unfortunately, over the years of the difficulty that you've gone through, at times, from the outside, people have seen the church divided, not united. They've seen people leave. They've seen people who feel criticized. And you say, oh man, John, you're, you've gone from preaching to meddling to, this is painful. I know it is, friends. And so my, my challenge to you is invest in someone for the kingdom. Because when you're investing in somebody else, all of a sudden all this other stuff kind of pales in insignificance because you're making a difference in people's lives for eternity. Amen? Amen. Now I want to illustrate that with a closing illustration that I'm not going to do. John, come on up. I'm going to let him wrap, wrap the sermon here and just give you a quick example of a mentoring, a discipleship relationship that's been happening here in our church. And we'll close with this. I wanted you to uh, meet one of the guys that I've been investing in, Dustin Arrieta. Come on up. Give it up for Dustin as he comes up. Have a seat. I feel like David Letterman here. Paul Schaefer, can we get you on the piano? No. Um, Dustin, um, as you and I have been meeting over the past couple of years, um, what has uh, discipleship meant to you? Uh, depends on what kind of trials I'm going through, really. Uh, I mean, discipleship, especially with you, has, has really helped me in my walk and helped me uh, stay committed. I mean, uh, I think a lot of people here know about a year and a half ago, I was going through a really tough time. And I just remember there was a time when I was like, I, I don't want to be in church anymore. I, I don't want to be uh, around my church family, and I, and I was just going through a lot of pain. And, and I know with you, I was very angry towards and called you some funny names. And uh, having you come after me was uh, with just an open heart was was huge for me. And and in that type of discipleship of just knowing that in the one of the roughest times of my life, especially when I was, uh, I mean, very rude to you to have you just listen and be so loving was 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 huge. Without going into detail, the, that suffering, you know, you, you did push a lot of people away. Um, but how did you see God use that time to build into you that idea of living, living out your walk? Um, I, I think that in that time, that struggle, it, it really made me absolutely have to be reliant on him. Um, and I mean, you know, we all hear the, the, the term of hitting rock bottom and, uh, I, apparently my life is a big fan of hitting that often. Um, <laughs> anyone else, uh, recognize that? Yeah. Feel that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't ask you to raise your hands. Okay. We need to talk, <laughs> but yeah. And, and so in that time, uh, I think with me hitting, hitting that, that bottom area, having, seeing how God was continuing uh, to bless me and, and to be there to support me was, was definitely huge. Uh, you playing a big factor in that, um, you know, just continuing to, again, show me love and, and, and really come after me was huge. Uh, the things that God reveals to you when you have no other choice but to look to him, I think, are, are huge. And uh, I've definitely been blessed uh, through you and other people as well. Um, of just knowing that God is always going to care for you. Uh, and often, you know, and I think in a lot of our lives, we see him most when we have no other choice but to look to him. And a part of the discipleship process is, is serving. And uh, I took Dustin and some students uh, a couple weeks ago down to the Dream Center. Uh, you want to share how service and, and uh, that experience helped you in your discipleship and your walk with Christ? Um. I, th I think it really opens my eyes to just the the need in an area. I mean, L.A. is not too far from here. I mean, it's, what, two hours, you know, in traffic. Uh, but, no. <laughs> 
It's like 40 miles, but yeah, two hours at least. Um, but no, being there and seeing the need of the people there was kind of like breaks my heart. You know, I've been to Mexico a bunch and being like, yeah, Mexico, these people are in need. And, and seeing the parts of L.A. that we were in, I'm like, wow, uh, I've been to parts of Mexico that are way better off than, than this. And seeing that, uh, being with uh, some students and, and with you and, and some other leaders was just uh, it's really eye opening and, and really uh, it's heartwarming to, to know that, you know, there's kids that are smiling. I say one of my favorite uh, parts of the day uh, was when we were having this worship gathering. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Katie's asked if her neighbor was a believer, and, and Katie looks to me and she goes, Dustin, are all these people believers? And I'm like, yeah, Katie. She goes, oh, good, good, good. And uh, it, made me, it made me laugh for a moment and then realize that the reason why we were there uh, was so that when we left that worship gathering that we uh, can show Christ's love to the people who may not be believers in, in the local neighborhoods. And, and it was really funny that it kind of took me until that morning and having a, was she six now? A six-year-old girl like, kind of opened my eyes to that. And I was like, wow, thanks, Katie. <laughs> As we close, the, you see the generation here. Now, Dustin is our middle school intern, and he is discipling our middle school guys especially um, and administering to that next generation. Um, and uh, and I, I would just ask, would you join me in, in prayers? You see discipleship taking place not only in this relationship, but also, you know, you're looking at two guys that meet with Jim Lodrigan too. Um, he, he does make time for us. I'm sorry. You're, you're the new guy, but yeah, but and we don't have to walk with him. So, um, but yeah. And, and so you're seeing the generational effect, I think, of discipleship. And as we close, and, and you think about this idea of discipleship, if you look at, at verse 1 of Colossians, this first chapter, Paul's writing with, it, with one of the guys that he was discipling, Timothy. He's writing this whole book with one of the guys he, he's been mentoring, that he's been discipling. And I think about that and I go, wow, Timothy was there ministering to him in the prison. He brought him along. The question is, as you are being discipled, who are you meeting with that's a little bit older, that's coming alongside you? And for those of you who are older, who are you meeting with that's a little bit younger? That you're just, hey, come, I got to get an oil change. Come with me and hang out. Or I got to go on a walk. My nine o'clock canceled. Will you come walk with me? And living life with and taking them along on this journey called faith. Will you help me in and join me in prayer for, for Dustin? And uh, as we close this service, the worship band's going to come up. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, Dustin. Thank you for his life and his ministry here to our middle school students. God, thank you for um, how you brought him into my life. God, and discipleship is not a, always a clear upward direction. There are bumps and dips and rises, and you get to the high point, to the peaks, and you get to see amazing things. And you keep moving ahead, God. Thank you for bringing him into my life, and thank you for the opportunity that, that I've had to build into his life. Thank you for Jim Lilligren that's been meeting with both of us. God, as we all uh, desire to become more like you, through sanctification, through service, through this process of discipleship. God, I pray for those that, that are seeking someone right now to meet with, that you would bring someone into their life. God, and I pray for those that, that don't have anyone that they're discipling right now, God, that you might encourage them to seek someone to come alongside of, to draw into your heart, God. From the moment we wake up, God, to the time the sun goes down, may we bless your name as we all become more like you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Lord, that is our prayer. We, we, we want to worship you, not just on Sunday, 
but every day of our life, may our tongues express gratitude to you for the difference that you're making in our lives. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the privilege of getting to be here during this time. And Lord, may you bless a Gur Bible Fellowship. Lord, may you bless the elders, the staff, all the many, many volunteers. And Lord, we want to serve you. We want to worship you. And so now as we close, we give you the praise. We give you the glory. We ask that you would present us, every man, every woman, complete in Christ. And as we live our lives, may each day we become more like you, conformed to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go in God's peace.